Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. The fact is, we don't know how many letters the Apostle Paul might have written during the years of his ministry. It could have been 20. It could have been 200. We, ju- we just don't know. We only know about the ones that are included in the Bible. These are the ones that in God's providence are preserved for our instruction nearly 2,000 years later. These are the ones that are written under the infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that form part of the written word of God. And most of Paul's letters that are included in the Bible are letters to churches. He wrote letters to seven churches. He wrote to the Christian churches in Rome, in Corinth, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Colossae. Our readings this morning are taken from chapter 3 of, this, of his letter to the church of Colossae. And he writes on many different themes in his letters to the churches. Each letter is quite different, dealing with different issues that have arisen in different churches. But what is quite remarkable is that every one of those seven churches received instructions from Paul in much the same way as this morning's reading from Colossians 3. I mean, you can, and you can, you can check me out on this if you want to, during the week, but you can read essentially the same train of thought, the same apostolic teaching in Romans chapter 6, in his first letter to the Corinthians chapters 12 and 13. You can read it in Galatians chapter 5, or Ephesians 4 and 5, or Philippians chapter 2, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in the case of the churches in Corinth and Thessalonica, who had at least two letters written to them that we know of, it's in his very first letter to each. So can you see a pattern here? I sure can. Now, just bear with me, just um, a little bit of a thought experiment. Just imagine for a moment that God had inspired Paul to write a letter to this church. What would it be called? Paul's letter to the Melburnians, presumably. Now, if there was such a letter, I'm quite sure that it too would include a passage, much the same as these others. You see, what Paul is doing here is teaching people about church membership. It's the doctrine, it's his doctrine of church membership. And it is so important to Paul that he makes sure every church he writes to is taught essentially this same doctrine. Why is this so important that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do this seven times over, ultimately for our benefit? Well, let's see what we can learn from Paul's doctrine and what it means for us as a congregation, as this congregation. 
Now, in this morning's reading, Paul starts his line of thought off with the word if. It's typical of the way Paul goes about his message. If this is so, then the following things that I'm going to say will apply. It's cause and effect. So what's this if that Paul uses? It's this. We see it at the beginning of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ. It's kind of a bit like those long questionnaires or application forms that I'm sure we've all had to deal with from time to time. You know the sort where it says, well, if you answered yes to this question, then continue to answer the following questions. But if you answered no, skip the rest and go straight to the end of the form. It's, it's kind of a bit like that. In effect, Paul is saying, if you're not yet a Christian, if you do not see yourself as having been raised in Christ, then what I'm about to say may not really make a lot of sense to you. It won't necessarily apply to you, not yet anyway. But if you do know yourself to be raised in Christ, if you do know yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then what I'm about to say very much applies to you, so pay attention. That's what Paul is implying here. But let me add my own plea to you. If you do not yet see yourself as a follower of Jesus, well then please pay attention anyway to what Paul goes on to say. He describes a way of life you might want to try for yourself. You never know. If then you have been raised with Christ, Paul tells us in verse 1 and 2, then seek the things that are above where Christ, seated at the right hand of God, is. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. By talking of things that are above, Paul means Christ. Set your minds on Christ, Paul is telling us, not the things that are on earth. And by talking about the things that are on earth, Paul means all the transient things of our material world, all the things that will perish and fade and fail, all the false idols of our hearts that we love to worship, that we so love to possess. But aren't these things the very spice of our lives? Don't we so much want our health? For example, don't we want wealth, or at the very least, not to live in abject poverty? Don't we want to be affirmed and loved by others? Why is Paul telling us to stop setting our heart on such things? Well, I think he expects that we might be asking a question something like that, so he answers our question in verse 3. Why should we not set our heart on such things? He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does this mean? Believers in Jesus are dead and yet they have life. It's his way of saying that through faith, the believer has died to sin 
and is reborn to new life in Christ. Your desire should no longer be for the false idols of this world because your new life is in union with Christ, who is himself God. You are hidden with Christ in God. And the glory that awaits the believer so outglories any possible earthly glory as to make it seem as nothing. Listen to how Paul puts it in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But there's a puzzle here. If the Holy Spirit has given you that saving gift of faith, if he has rebirthed you as a redeemed child of God, if he has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, then why does Paul have to spell out what should be obvious and automatic? Why does he have to keep pleading with Christians to behave as Christians should? The short answer is that we all continue to suffer from the residual effects of our old sinful selves. Yes, believers are renovated by the Holy Spirit from the inside out, but the inner pull of the old self wants to every now and then kick holes in the renovation work. It wants to graffiti the newly painted walls of God's dwelling place within us, and it wants to invite back the old destructive idols who used to rule us. Well, if there's any consolation, it's clear from Paul that this is something that afflicts every Christian, every church member to one extent or another, and in one form or another. The work of our salvation is the exclusive monopoly of God. We bring nothing at all to the table except our desperate need for it. But the ongoing work of our spiritual renovation, that's a partnership. It's a partnership between our, our conscious efforts and God's empowering grace. And that's why Paul urges us on. We need to consciously work on our attitudes, our reactions, our behaviour. And this conscious renovation needs to start with how we treat each other, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about what you, as a congregation, seek to encourage in each other. And it's also about what attitudes and behaviour you will not encourage and will not ignore. Paul speaks of this ongoing process within us as if we are to take off our old uniform of sin and dress in the new uniform of Christ. He mentions, if you like, five items of clothing that make up that old uniform. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk. You'll see that in verse 8. And he then adds this general instruction. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self 
with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This renewed knowledge from God means all the worldly distinctions and divisions should no longer have any validity among us. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, if Paul had written that letter to the Melburnians, he might have said the same thing a bit like this. Here there is no European and African, no Asian and Pacific Islander, no First Nations people and recent immigrants, no lifelong Christian and new convert, no rich and poor, no male and female, no young and old, no blue collar and white collar, no private schooled and state schooled, no liberal voter, labor voter, teal voter and greens voter, but rather Christ is the totality of us and much more besides. And Christ dwells within each one of his followers. Now, if we grasp this, if we take this divine truth to our hearts, it has huge implications for how we treat each other. If indeed Christ dwells within each of us, then what we do to each other, we do to Christ. And what we do for each other, we do for Christ. And whatever we do against each other, meaning to harm each other, is harming Christ himself. Now, Paul, of all people, was dramatically made to understand that to harm a follower of Jesus is to actually also harm the ascended Christ. You might recall that in his previous role, as he travelled to Damascus to terrorise and round up Christians... Christ appeared to him and told him in, in Acts chapter 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I hope you can see what a serious and sobering thought that is. It's a thought that goes to the very heart of church membership. It's the essence of Paul's doctrine of church membership. How we treat each other is how we treat Christ. No wonder he urges us not only to keep discarding any vestige of our old uniform of sin, but to put on all the items of clothing that make up our new uniform in Christ. As chosen, holy and beloved, redeemed children of God, Paul tells us in verse 12, put on, and, he's, and he lists five items of our new clothing, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. What does this mean in practice? Paul tells, it, tells us that it means bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
And why? He tells us in verse 13, because the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice that word, must. We must forgive each other. It's not optional. Just as we are forgiven by God, so we must forgive. Jesus taught us precisely the same thing in teaching us how to pray. And that's why we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And just as Paul instructed us not to lie to each other, he now gives us another general instruction for church membership. You see it in verse 14. Above all, he tells us, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Don't lie and do everything from love. In his letter to the Ephesians, he calls this speaking the truth in love. By doing this, Paul says in that letter, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This then is Paul's doctrine of church membership. It's not something that we're supposed to do grudgingly or unwillingly or sparingly. It's not something we only do when we get told to do it or when we get caught out. It's something we are to do with gratitude. And that's why Paul tells us in verse 15 to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts to which indeed we are called in one body and be thankful. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church Melbourne.